The scripture reading is from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. (laughs) He also has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the ones who who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Is this on now? Hey! Whoo! Let's say it together, Nicolations. Well done. That's awesome. Uh, I used to I used to love uh, working with Young Life and having kids uh, who had never read the Bible before and just giving them just horrific Old Testament names to to try to read out loud and just laughing at them, which is a great way to motivate young believers. Uh, <laughs> I have to tell you, you guys got me good this morning. Uh, you got me good. Cold, dark, rainy, set the clocks forward day. Let's give it to a guest preacher. <laughs> got me good. I should have known. I should have known. I should have known that it was like, it's like the times when churches are like, hey, would you fill in? And uh, like, yeah, sure, when? And like Labor Day or <laughs> Memorial Day. Ah, yeah, we're going to be at the lake then too. Um, but I actually, I do love mischief, and so I have a great appreciation for you all for your sense of mischief. Um, not mischief like the kind that hurts people, because that's just mean. Um, but I mean like mischief, like uh, like just a good prank. You know, a good prank like that sets, that, that like, you know, uh, disrupts folks, that makes them feel uncomfortable, the kind that you can uh, tell a good story about later. Um, and having worked in youth ministry for so many years, I have so many stories of great pranks, uh, especially like senior pranks um, that kids would do, and I can tell those to you sometime if you want to um, when we hang out as friends. But um, specifically, I I, I love, um, uh, I coach soccer, Uh, I I work for the Charlotte Eagles, which is a ministry that uses the platform of soccer to uh, evangelize, disciple, and uh, and create leaders. Um, But anyhow, the uh, 
the thing that I would love to do at tryouts, especially when I when we, we got tryouts with high school kids, if you do this with, with like elementary school kids, it really throws them off too much. It's just kind of mean. And I don't like those kinds of pranks. But high schoolers, I like this, is, is that the first day of tryouts, um, I'm the coach, and I walk up, and I've got my clipboard, and, and so I come over to, and, and it's the best with a freshman. Freshmen are awesome. Because um, you come over to a freshman, and you're like, hey, uh, are you, what's your name? And they're like, I'm, I'm CJ. I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, and they're like, are you the coach? I'm like, I am. And so I've got my clipboard. I'm like, CJ. And then I just say, hey, you know this is a tryout, right, CJ? He's like, yes, sir. You know, he's like super nervous and everything. I go, CJ, are you good? It's just so funny to see how they react, right? Because like, uh, like a lot of t- this is, these are the two routes that people choose. So I say, CJ, are you good? I'm like, oh, I mean, no. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and he's like, well, I mean, I, I am. Like, I just I don't want to be I don't want to be I don't want to be cocky. But like, oh, I am. I'm really good. Oh, really good. Well, not that good. I'm not that good. Scratch, you know. Or the other one is like, you're like, hey, CJ, are you good? It's like, oh, yeah, man, I'm good. And I'm like, oh, arrogant. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's like, well, no, no, I mean, like, like, I'm not arrogant. You know, I'm a good teammate. And I'm like, and I'm like, oh, yeah, good teammate. That's what all the guys who aren't good say. <laughs> and it's just super funny to mess with, to mess with kids and, and ask them uh, if they're good. But as this is my second time here at North Cross, I would just love to know, North Cross, are you good? Um, <laughs> church bingo, you got it. Um, but like, are, are you good? But like keeping in mind that uh, as a church, you're a group of people. Uh, the church is not just the leadership of the church, though the leadership is part of the church. Y'all are the church. And I'm curious that as you think about yourselves as a church or maybe as individual believers, if you were to write a top three list of the things that you're best at, what would that be? You can go ahead, write it down. One, two, three. Literally one, two, three. Nobody's writing. Cool. So we'll just imagine it. Uh, it's going to be important because we're going to come back to this later, so you're really messing up the sermon right now. <laughs> the things that you would say that you're best at, top three, as a church. Almost all of us uh, carry the anxiety in life that we want to be good enough. Some of us wake up in the morning and have learned how to channel that anxiety into an ambition to be great. Many of us want to even be the best of the best. And if you're like that and a Christian, chances are you want your church, that is the followers of Jesus that you surround yourself with, to be the best of the best. So are you good? Let's pray. Jesus, uh, please shine your light on our hearts. God, it has to be you. It has to be you, not me. Um, It has to be you that convicts us, that reminds us, that takes us back. Father, I pray that we would be like the younger son in the prodigal uh, prodigal story that is reminded uh, and uh, sent home by the memory of the good father. Jesus, please move in our hearts. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're talking about Revelation this morning. um, And uh, judging by looking at this room, probably at least 50% of you read the Left Behind series. Of that 50%, 90% of you thought it was awesome. Um, 
But, uh, but Revelation is, is a highly stigmatized book of the Bible, um, and, uh, and there's a lot of odd feelings about it. Um, my wife, when she was in college, had a dream that uh, somebody ran into her room and said, Jesus has come back like the world's ending. And maybe you've had a dream like this before. Um, and, uh, and she said that she woke up sad. Um, she woke up sad. I mean, we know that as Christians, we're supposed to long for the palingen- palingenesia, the, the, the renewal, the restoration of all things, the new world. We know that we're supposed to long for that. But like we kind of, a lot of times we kind of like this place, you know, and that's, that's not a bad thing. And so a lot of times revelation is like this thing. It's like, oh yeah, it's going to be good news, but it, like it's going to hurt, you know, and there's all that tribulation stuff and, and, uh, and that's going to be tough. I'm probably, I don't want to be around for that. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, Laura woke up sad from the dream, in large part because she hadn't met me yet. <laughs> um, but I'm joking. Great. I'm using this handheld. It's going to be awesome. Um, so uh, where was I? My wife was sad because she hadn't met me yet. Um, revelation. Anyway, uh, Revelation is about a lot of things. Um, but Revelation, more than any other book in the Bible, shows Jesus as he is right now. Like, the, the Jesus that's portrayed in the book of Revelation is the exact same Jesus in the exact same way that we encounter him. Um, it, uh, it shows Jesus as he relates to the movement of human history. Uh, the book of Revelation sees Jesus in a way that overcomes our fears and leads to radical faith. In fact, the book of Revelation might be the greatest antidote to fear that we believers have, and isn't it so funny that we're scared to read it? Um, and maybe, maybe I'm not speaking for all of you. Maybe some of you are like, oh man, my life verse is Revelation 17, 16. Good for you. There is no other book of the Bible in the face of everything that threatens to undo us that proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ the way that this last book of the Bible does, and no other book... Uh, in all of human literature, makes it so crystal clear what it means to belong to and follow Jesus in this world. Book of Revelation, likely written between 92 and 96 AD, uh, most likely 96. Um, And for those of you who think, who get kind of thrown off by the dates on that, there's a really good chance that John was a teenager when he was a disciple of Jesus. In fact, most of the disciples were probably teenagers when they followed Jesus. How do I know that? Uh, do you remember the story where, uh, where, they're, where the disciples and Jesus are going into the temple and they need to pay the temple tax to get in? Jesus tells Peter, go <coughs> catch a fish in the water. In that fish is going to be two coins, one for me, one for you. And then all of the disciples go in. Well, if all of the disciples were over the age of 18 or were adults, they all would have needed to play, pay the temple tax. Um, it's don't take a bullet for that, but it's a, it's a really, good, really good guess that most of the disciples were teenagers, that they were young. And so that puts them, you know, at 17, 18 years old in 33 AD uh, when Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And so the idea that John is still, uh, still in pretty good shape in 96 AD is, is very plausible. Um, so, but over the years after that, uh, in 65 AD, persecution of Christians intensified. This is 32 years after the resurrection of Jesus under the emperor Nero. Peter was likely crucified in 65 AD. Uh, it, uh, with a new emperor, Vespasian, uh, he ratcheted up the intensity of persecution of Christians in 67 AD. That's when Paul was likely martyred in 67 AD. Jerusalem was then destroyed in 70 AD. 
Timothy was murdered around 90 AD, and in 92, uh, they ratcheted it up even higher uh, with Domitian when he instituted uh, empire-wide the requirement for worship of himself. So for the Apostle John, this is, this is, this, uh, uh, the Apostle John was actually in Ephesus at this time, which was home to two shrines of worship for Emperor Domitian. And John, who had seen all of his best friends be murdered, including his Lord, um, he was not about to go into the temple of Domitian, take a pinch of incense, and say, Domitian is Lord, because for him there's only one Lord. And at that age, his old knees aren't bowing to anybody but Jesus. Um, and this is the backdrop of the writing of Revelation, because when he refused to do that, he was sent to the Isle of Patmos, uh, which was off the coast of Turkey, where um, the Roman Empire had a rock quarry that was used uh, for enemies of the state to live out their last days. It's there on Patmos that, G that John is worshiping Jesus uh, when Jesus just happens to show up like he does <laughs> and uh, gives them this message for the churches. The letters to the churches, in case you're thinking, oh man, there's some mysterious way that the letters are ordered, right? Because Re Revelation's super mysterious. It's not, actually, the, the letters are ordered in the path that a postman would have carried them into the mainland. And so Ephesus, being a port city, has the first one. And the first of these decrees was addressed to the church, who probably could have answered the question better than anybody else, are you good, by saying, oh yeah, we're good. In fact, the church of Ephesus at that time was most likely the best of the best. See, Ephesus was an important city. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Behind Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch came Ephesus. It was the second largest financial center in the Roman Empire, so think Charlotte. Um, and uh, it was the most important seaport in Asia Minor. The church there was started by Paul. Priscilla and Aquila nurtured the church. Later, Paul spent 2.5 years there with wildly effective ministry. If you remember in the book of Acts, it says that Paul shared the gospel um, in the hall of Tyrannus until all of the residents of Asia heard the gospel. That's what I qualify as wildly effective ministry. He did a really good job there. Um, so Timothy was left in charge uh, of the church until his murder in 90 AD. And then John based his ministry to the churches in Asia Minor out of Ephesus, and it was there um, that his gospel, the gospel of John, good, uh, it was there that his gospel was, was written. And also, it's not too far-fetched to imagine that when John moved to Ephesus, he brought his adopted mother with him. Who was John's adopted mother? Mary. Yeah, remember Jesus gave Mary to John when he was hanging on the cross. And so you can imagine that this church at Ephesus, they've got the heavy hitters, all right? They've got, they've got everybody who's everybody, for the most part, affiliated with their church. Um, even doing the Apostles' Creed on, on Sunday morning, can you imagine, you know, standing up there and we believe, uh, conceived of the Virgin Mary? Oh gosh, you're there. Is that awkward? Um, I'm just kidding, they didn't write that yet. And so what does Jesus have to say to the church that was the best of the best? To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The stars are the messengers to the churches. So essentially, Jesus is saying like, yes, the people who are leading you, I've got them in my hand. I've got them right in the palm of my hand. And the lampstands are the churches themselves. 
it's important to know where Jesus is in relation to the lampstands. He is among the lampstands. He is among his churches. Jesus is walking with them. This is so important for you to know. You, church, that is in a prolonged pastoral hunt, whose interim pastor had a very desperate surgery, like, Jesus is among you. You who suffer. Like, you who are somehow adding new members when you don't know who your next pastor is going to be. Jesus is walking among the lampstands. That's where he is. He's with you. And what does he say from his time being close to the lampstands? He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call them apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Look, if Jesus is going to walk into your church and give you a compliment, those are some pretty good things to compliment you about. All right? That's like going to a CrossFit gym and having the coach be like, your form and breathing is incredible. Like, the, the explosive power that you get when you lift that thing, like, I don't have anything to say to you. That's what it would be like. That's not what it's like for me when I go to the gym. You know? They're like, why are you jumping? Why are you lifting with one foot and not both of them? Why are you sweating so much? Um, he says, I know your works. What are the works? Your hard work. Ephesus, your strenuous and exhausting labor, Ephesus, how Ephesus can, uh, diligently and conscientiously pushes itself for the kingdom. The church of Ephesus has a history of counting the cost of discipleship and of paying the price. Those are the works of Ephesus. And then he says, I see your toil and your patient endurance. He says, how you are long-suffering, how you oppose the emperor cult and the steamy worship of the goddess Artemis, whose seven wonders of the world temple was found in Ephesus. This church is growing in the shade of not one but two temples to the emperor Domitian. Usually if a city in the Roman Empire was really good, they were rewarded with one temple to the emperor Ephesus was so good, they got double. And not only that, but there's Artemis who's worshipped there. I mean, you got, and people in Ephesus, they, they loved them some Artemis. All right? I mean, you guys remember in the book of Acts? You know, they, all the craftsmen get together and they just start shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And Paul and all of his friends are trying to talk and they just shout louder and then they, then they carry him up and, like, they're going to rip their arms off their sockets like a, like something. I almost said Chewbacca like a Wookiee, but I talked about Star Wars a lot last time, and Todd's been making fun of me since then, so I caught myself. The church of Ephesus is, is toiling and enduring patiently in a really difficult place. He says, I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil, that you have tested apostles who are not apostles. The Ephesians were committed to a purity of life and to a purity of doctrine. They were PCA. They were not indifferent or compromising. They were committed to both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So if you had asked Ephesus what their top three things that they're best at 
What John Stott, the Anglican priest and epic theologian of the last century, said Ephesus' top three was, Ephesus's. He says, number one, that they're energetic in their service. Number two, they're patient in their suffering. And number three, that they're orthodox in their faith. Put in another way, the church at Ephesus is tough, tenacious, and true. But then comes verse four. I have this against you. I have this against you, verse four, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've left your first love. You see, the church at Ephesus suffers from something that I know very well and I experience even this morning and that I expect that you do too. The church at Ephesus is giving a first-rate commitment to a second-rate cause. Truly, as it was said in the book of Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The church at Ephesus has everything except the one thing that is most needed, the one thing that Jesus deserves most, and that's to be in love with him. You see, Ephesus, like all of our churches, including this one, is not called to be the best of the best, but is called to be the best at the best. Y'all, I wonder of the top three lists that you all wrote for your church that you're best at or for yourself as followers of Jesus, I wonder, did anyone write in the top three, loving Jesus? Of course not. <laughs> it's understood. <laughs> we wouldn't be here on this cold, rainy, dark morning where we set the clocks back. If we didn't, right, it's assumed. It goes without saying. Nothing goes without saying. Drift happens really easily, and it happens all over life. Does anybody remember uh, what was before Netflix? Anybody remember what was before Netflix? Big blue sign, yellow letters. Blockbuster. The key ingredient to any amazing sleepover. Blockbuster. Before Bo Blockbuster went bankrupt, they had a chance to completely demolish Netflix. Do you remember when Netflix first got started, before it was all those fancy cool shows and that thing at the beginning that goes dum dum? And uh, you, guys, you guys remember that? You would, you would go on the internet and you would type in a list of movies that you wanted to see and then they would mail them to you, DVDs. Imagine. <laughs> and they would come and it was this subscription service and you would pay for the subscription fee and that you would just update your key and, and when uh, you were done with the, the DVD, you would send it back and they would send you your next one. And do you remember what the best part about that was? Not that it came to your house, it's that you didn't have to pay late fees. Because at Blockbuster, you always had to pay late fees, right? And it turns out that people hate late fees. Imagine. And so Netflix starts shooting way up. But before Blockbuster went bankrupt, they could have squashed Netflix like it would never have existed. Um, Blockbuster, uh, Blockbuster, if Blockbuster had matched Netflix and gone into the subscription business, uh, Netflix would not be in existence today. And it, it, the proposal went all the way up to a board meeting. Uh, and at the board meeting where they had to vote on whether or not to go after the subscription business, the board voted no, not to. Hindsight's 2020. <laughs> but uh, do you know why? It's because the previous year, Blockbuster had made $800 million in late fees. 
And so they decided they couldn't go into the subscription business because $800 million of their revenue was based on them charging late fees. In that moment, they decided that they weren't going to be a business about providing entertainment anymore, that they were going to be a business about late fees. And it happens just that easily. It was a decision that stood in stark contrast to what anyone else would have said that they existed for and could not possibly have been why they got into business in the first place. But it's the reason why there's only one blockbuster left in the U.S. And there's a documentary that you can watch about it on Netflix. <laughs> Pastor Earl Palmer in the Pacific Northwest calls this drift Ephesus Syndrome. And says the irony of Ephesus Syndrome is that the Christian becomes totally preoccupied, fascinated with themes and goals which never would have won him or her in the first place to Christ or to join the church. Y'all, to be obsessed with the offshoots of love more than the object of love is to miss the whole thing entirely. This is what Jesus calls out Ephesus for, is that you love the things, you love the things that you do for me more than you love me. He's confronting a new, what I've come to call is in preparing for this sermon, new covenant Phariseeism. He's saying, you just drifted off that much. You've become preoccupied with things that never would have won you to me in the first place. I mean, seriously, look at us. Oh, man, we love our doctrine. We're Presbyterian. We love our church government. We're Presbyterian. How many of you ever would have walked down the aisle and prayed the prayer? How many of you would have ever gone under the waters of baptism? How many of you would have ever stood up at summer camp and said, I'm giving my life to Jesus because of church government? I'm giving my life to Jesus uh, because of five-point Calvinism. Tulip. Look, I love it too. I'm Presbyterian. I'm a ruling elder. I rule. But y'all, none of that is what captured our hearts in the first place. And yet so much of our functioning comes out of that stuff. Comes out of the other things. Or maybe what you love is, is that this faith that you have backs up your national identity. Or maybe it provides a platform for you to feel good about your race. Or maybe this faith that you have, and that goes, before anybody like rolls their eyes or raises their eyebrows, that cuts every direction. I'm not just saying that because we're all white here. That cuts every direction. <laughs> maybe this faith that you love is, is because of, it backs up how you want to be pro-life how you vote or maybe that it's because it keeps you from sinning and when you don't sin you're better than your neighbor maybe it's because it leads you to sobriety or it tells you how to manage your money and those are the podcasts that we listen to of how your faith should impact those things but man that's not why you stood up at summer camp and through tears said I'm Cliff Wright from Greensboro, North Carolina, and this week I've given my life to Jesus. Jesus has to confront our new covenant, Phariseeism. So how do we recover first love? Jesus says it. Remember, therefore, 
from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from his place unless you repent. He tells us, remember. Remember what it was like the hour that you first believed. How precious did that grace appear? Remember. I mean, gosh, do you remember what it was like when you were this wild, crazy new believer? You know, when it's like you turned up the music in your car and you just drove windows down and it was like, I can only imagine, right? Surrounded by your glory. Yeah, it's like, I don't care. I'm singing at the stoplight. It used to be Blink-182 and now it's this. Or it's like you walk in to grab a smoothie and the person that takes that word is like, why are you so happy? And you're like, do you want to know? <laughs> do you really want to know? Jesus, save me. I love him. I love him so much. Or where it's like you just, you would doodle in class and draw crosses. Like, do you remember what it was like to just be, as Pride and Prejudice says, incandescently in love with Jesus? Just be lit up by it to remember what that was like. And to remember how that defeated sin in your life. Y'all, you see, sin is separation from God. It's not just the things that we do that make God angry. Those are sins. But sin is separation from God, alienation from God. In a very practical understanding, what that means is that we attach ourselves to the wrong thing. In the absence of being connected to God, we attach ourselves to the wrong things. And how do we do that? What is the mechanism by which we attach ourselves to the wrong things? Love. Our power to love and worship is a gift that's hardwired into us. It's our operating system. It's what our phones come with. We came with it. Brian Habig in Greenville, South Carolina says, nobody has to teach you how to worship. You show up knowing how to worship. You just worship the wrong things. It's hardwired into us. We show up with this, like, already loaded. Um, and it is for the express purpose of attaching us to God. You see, in sin, our desiring and our loving and our worship become distorted in this incredible power of affectionate attachment of love and worship jumps to anything and everything but the one thing that it was made for. John Webster, the theologian uh, at the University of St. Andrews, says it this way, when we set our affections on something, we come to regard it as supremely significant, valuable, and praiseworthy, and it offers us a satisfaction and fulfillment which we cannot derive from other things, and we arrange our lives in such a way that we take every opportunity to enjoy that satisfaction and experience that fulfillment. End quote. One of the most serious demands that the gospel makes on human life as it invades us is the reorganization of our loves. The deeper change underneath all of our Christian transformation is a change in what we love. Until our affections are made new by being set on the right object, the work of regeneration remains incomplete. As Webster says, the affections are, in a real sense, the engines of our attitudes and actions. What we are and what we do cannot be separated from what we love. And so, you have this church, Ephesus, which has seemingly become more preoccupied with the actions of being Christian than the Christ whose act has made them Christians. And what about you?
Where's your new covenant Phariseeism? Who do you love? Who do you love? I mean, I'm telling you, man, like inside of me right now, I can tell you what's going on. Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off is kicking his dad's, uh, his dad's vintage Ferrari and screaming, who do you love? Who do you love? That's, that's what it looks like inside of me. And that's probably what it looks like inside of you. And I didn't come here to take my belt off and give it to you for, for, for spankings. That's not how Jesus changes us. And so Jesus doesn't actually keep the, the church at Ephesus there. He gives them a plan. Just repent and do the things that you did at first. But he's not even going to condemn all the things. Like, look how gracious Jesus is here. He comes back and he says, yet this you have, you, you, uh, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Like, Jesus is saying, like, look, I'm not saying that the things that you do for me is, are bad. I'm just saying that it's a, it's a first-rate commitment to a second-rate cause. The first-rate cause is loving me, the thing that you did at first. Love me. Attach your affections to me. All Christian transformation, all gospel renewal, all regeneration is dependent on first love being vibrant. That you love him. Look, I, I would rather be up here telling you five steps about how to do this well. But the fact of the matter is, is like, I've tried that with my wife. Five steps to make my wife love me more. They don't, they, they don't exist. You just love her. I just love her. You just love your spouse. You just love your kids. Daryl Johnson, pastor and scholar, writes, without first love, service becomes lifeless routine or even drudgery. Without first love, endurance becomes the joyless shuffling along. Without first love, orthodoxy becomes narrow-minded, nitpicking legalism. And without first love, hatred of the practices of the Nicolaitans becomes hatred of the Nicolaitans themselves. You see, first love allows us to do the good works of regeneration without being defined by them. Because we're defined by the root that causes that good works. And then the promise at the end. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Where did the tree of life first show up? In the garden. Jesus is saying, like, look, just, it's all there. It's all in just loving me. Because the tree of life was representative, and I'm not saying that it was an allegory, but what it was, it was direct fellowship with God. It was direct face-to-face -face knowing God, loving God. And the decision to turn away from that detached the heart from the thing that it needed most. It cut the umbilical cord of our connection with God. In the fall of man, the way to the tree was blocked, but in the rise of Christ, the way to the tree was opened. And the thing about it is that Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Jesus Christ himself is the tree of life. It's not that complicated. 
there was a, there's this story that I heard of um, uh, a border between two countries that were at war with each other. And, uh, and the, at the border on one of these roads, there was a checkpoint. They hadn't completely shut the borders. You were allowed to go back and forth. And every week, this man would come to the checkpoint border, and he would have a wheelbarrow, and it was covered with a tarp. And he would push it up to the gate, and the guards would say, stop right there. And they would go out, and they'd take the tarp off the wheelbarrow, and there wouldn't be anything inside. And, and, uh, and, and then they'd put it back on, and they'd inspect it, and they'd say, well, I, I guess you can go through. And so they'd lift the gate, and he'd walk through. And this went on every single week of the war. And when the war was over, and the countries had peace with each other again, uh, the guys who worked at the guard station and the guy who was carrying the wheelbarrows saw each other at a pub. And uh, the guards said, hey, come over here. We've got to know. All those years, we knew you were smuggling something. What were you smuggling? We could never find it, but what were you smuggling? And the guy takes a drink and he goes, you want to know? And they're like, we need to know. What were you smuggling the entire time? He says, wheelbarrows. The thing is the thing. Loving Jesus, having your affections attached to him, is not one of the things you, you do. It's all that you do. It's all that, it's all that you're supposed to do. Eat from the tree of, of life. Look at Jesus. Cast your gaze on him. Don't love being a Christian more than you love Christ. Don't love doing things for Christ more than you love Christ because those things can't carry the heavy weight of your soul. Only the power of your affections, rightly attached to the right object of your affections, only in that can your soul possibly come alive, and anything else, I promise you, will disappoint you every day of your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Please help us love you more. Lord, thank you for how you mercifully expose our new covenant Phariseeisms to each of us. And Lord, I pray that uh, this week as we drive in our cars and maybe turn on a worship song and cast our take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on you, that we would experience that, that teenage first love of you again. And Lord, I pray that when we wake and we read your word in the morning, that we journal to you and that we pray to you, that you would help us to know that you are the same today as you were in that first day for us, and that you love us dearly. In Jesus' name, amen.